0: All right. Welcome, uh, everyone. Uh, my name is Karen Smith, and I am the head of the International Relations uh, Department uh, at the LSE. Welcome to this public event on Women in International Thought, which seeks to uncover and explore the rich history of scholarly work by women on international relations that has so often been ignored in the discipline. We only have an hour, so I'm going to move straight to introducing our distinguished panel of speakers, and I'm going to do that in the order in which they will speak. First off, we have Patricia Owens, prof- Professor Patricia Owens, who is Director of the Hume Research Project, Women and the History of International Thought, <clears throat> and co-editor with Katharina Rietzler of Women's International Thought and New History, uh, which is shortly, it has just uh, been uh, published. We also, secondly, then have Professor uh, Michael Cox, Mick Cox, who is an Emeritus Professor of International Relations at the LSE, his most recent work includes an introduction to a centennial edition of um, Keynes' The Economic Consequence of the Peace. He's currently working on a history of international relations at the LSE. And finally, but certainly not lastly, I mean, not leastly, uh, we have uh, one of our own uh, PhD students, Shruti Balaji, who is a PhD researcher in the International Relations Department at the LSE. And she's working on Indian women international thinkers in the late colonial period in India about from about 1920 to 1950. Each of our speakers is gonna speak for about 10 minutes. uh, And then we're going to launch uh, the discussion. If you have questions for a panel, please use the Q&A function uh, to do so. And I really recommend that you give, um, given the time that we have, if you could please direct your questions to all of the panels. I'm then gonna gather them together to all of the panelists. I'll then gather them together um, and then uh, we'll have a sort of a more general uh, discussion amongst uh, the three of them, between the three of them. For those of you who tweet, the Twitter hashtag for this event is hashtag LSE Thought. Um, first, okay, so uh, those are our speakers. That's all the housekeeping done. So now let's get down to the real business of the, um, of the afternoon. So first, over to uh, Patricia Owens, who's got, I can see, um, the nice advertisement for the Human Trust uh, project right behind her. Right, over to you, Patricia.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Wonderful to be here. Thanks, Karen, for that. Um, And to Zoe, Matthew, Nick and Joe for setting things up behind the scenes. Um, This is an exciting time to be working what I think we can now call the field of women's international thought. Women defined and transformed the substance and practice of international relations as as it emerged as a separate intellectual field, examining the relations between peoples, empires and states at the turn of the 20th century. They engaged the international politics of their time in the context of diverse colonial and anti-colonial struggles, inter-imperial wars and superpower rivalry, and nationalist ideological and political conflict. Women founded or co-founded some of the earliest teaching and research centers in international relations. They addressed all the core subjects of the time. They wrote within universities and in multiple fields and disciplines, as well as parallel professional contexts such as think tanks, journalism and political activism. This wide-ranging work took many forms and genres, it was well-known and influential in its time. Yet if we examine the contemporary field of international relations, its history and its scholars, it is as if if this past never existed, as if women had hardly lived, thought and practiced international relations as scholars, advisors and policymakers, as journalists and as public intellectuals. As if women were incapable of and incidental to knowledge of this subject, except in highly specific, i.e. related to gender, or in certain moments in time. The contemporary discipline of international relations is a field in which the mediocre work of those gendered male and racialized as white can be celebrated and canonized, and even the exceptional, or for that matter, mid-level work of those gendered female and racialized as non-white can be ignored, appropriated, or maligned. Fortunately, there are now several uh, serious and ongoing attempts to address this state of affairs, that is to move beyond both the shock of discovery and then fury at the injustice towards, uh, uh, t- uh, towards a historical and theoretical project of recovery and analysis. I direct one of these, a collaborative and interdisciplinary Lee Boheme Trust research project. My brilliant co-investigators and Sussex historian, Katarina Ritzler, international political theorist, Kim Hutchings at Queen Mary and Oxford PhD researcher, Joe Wood. Historian, Sarah Dunstan just completed a two year postdoc and is now at Queen Mary. Our first cross-disciplinary co-edited volume, Women's International Thought and New History, has just come out um, and its teaching companion will be out later this year, an anthology called Women's International Thought Towards a New Canon. We think this will be the largest collection of international thought in print, comprised of 104 selections by 92 different thinkers. Much of this work is little known, difficult to access or out of print. We make some of it available for the first time and some of it is newly translated. We certainly do not think that anthologizing is a solution to the problem that precipitated and justified the volume. Um, however, like canon formation itself, anthologizing is fundamentally pedagogical and often conservative, but, but not without radical potential. So let me mention two other concurrent and kindred projects. One is on women's erasure from histories of international law, led by Amy Talgren at Helsinki, who is also a visiting fellow at the LSU Center for Women, Peace and Security. And at the EUI, Glenda Sluger, who's been working in this field for many years, is leading an ERC project incorporating a history of women thinkers in international institutions. The goal of our Leverhulme project is to begin to systematically map, document and analyse as much as we can the range and complexity of historical women's international thought. Our focus is narrow on Britain and the United States in the early to long mid 20th century, but not only within universities or only Anglo-American thinkers building on and extending work in Black intellectual history, many of our thinkers are of African and or Caribbean descent. Indeed, without doubt, the most sophisticated contemporary literature on women's international thought is in Black intellectual history. Here we find book-length treatments of figures such as Alanda Robeson, who studied at LSE in the 30s, LSE historian Imma Bang Umaran has written on Robeson, and also Paulette Nadal and Una Marzen. Importantly, Black intellectual history is not merely a source of additional names to add to white women's IR or even of original theorizations of world politics. This work also offers a model of how we might approach women's international thought more generally, including creative methodologies for when archives are hard to locate or non existent, or when personal papers exist in fragments or not at all. Drawing on decades of feminist historiography it draws attention to the intimate and familial bases of all intellectual production. This includes the numerous collaborators who were central to the production of great texts and great men, but are erased in canon formation, and it draws attention to the importance of a wider range of genres and locations for international thinking. Of course, the existing separation between black intellectual history and general histories of international thought, or white histories of international thought, does not arise from a natural separation of fields. It is a product of the deeply racialized and gendered history of the discipline of IR itself. From its deep-seated assumptions about intellectual significance and influence. In this context, the really urgent task, of course, is to recover and analyze women's international thought from around the world. This is why Shruti Balaji's work on Indian thinkers that we're about to hear about is so important and there are several other PhDs on the way. In the next two years, we plan to organize collaborative workshops on our global intellectual histories of women's international thought. For this talk, I was asked to address LSE Women International Thinkers LSE of course was an important site of women's international thinking in the early to long mid 20th century in Britain. It has also been a wonderful source of support for the dissemination of work on this topic. And this includes hosting a project conference in May next year, which will coincide with the opening of a public exhibition on women thinkers uh, at the main library exhibition space. I'm grateful to the international relations department for that support. Um, please look out for the call for papers coming soon and information on the exhibition early next year. Mick is going to speak about two figures who worked in the IR department, Coral Bell and of course Susan Strange, the only academic woman in the entire history of the field to receive close to the recognition that she deserves. But of course, international relations is a subject, not a discipline, so we find international thinking across LSE departments. In fact, a very large proportion of what today we would consider core IR subjects was taught by LSE economic historic, women economic historians from as early as 1904. In the forthcoming anthology, those with LSE connections include Susan Strange and Coral Bell, but also Lillian Knowles, Eileen Power, Lucy Philip Mayer, Amanda Robeson, Barbara Wooten, Louise Holborn, Ursula Hicks, Edith Penrose, Eleanor Lanson Dulles, Persia Campbell, Rachel Wall, Margaret Lambert, Ma- Margaret Reed, and Suda Chenoy. Others we didn't include uh, are Vera-, Vera Anstey, Hilda Lee, and Dorothy Pickles. In my short time that remains, I'd like to say something about Lucy Philip Mayer to to illuminate just one of the mechanisms through which women are written out of IR's disciplinary history and wider intellectual history. I'll also say something briefly about Eileen power to highlight how women's marginalization has contributed to IR's failure as an intellectual project. Lucy Philip Mayer, she's the one wearing the the glasses, uh, was among the first cohort of scholars hired in the LSE's Department of International Studies established in 1927. She was a prolific writer, teacher, and advisor of governments on colonial administration, one of the centrally important IR questions of her day. She was a high-profile figure in white women's IR. She taught a large percentage of LSC IR students until 1945, when, due to a reorganization of subjects, she was migrated to the b- she migrated with want wish to back migrate to the new anthropology department. As a Erasia from Disciplinary History began with her erstwhile colleague, Charles Manning, hold of the Montague Burton chair between 1930 and 1962. Mayer and her subjects of colonial administration were first written out in Manning's internal accounts of IR's history at LSE. But perhaps worse, not a single woman was hired in the department during Manning's tenure. That is, between Mayer's appointment in 1928, two years before Manning, until two years after he retired when Dorothy Pickles was appointed to teach foreign policy in 1964. That's 36 years. In other words, Charles Manning was not only a white supremacist supporter of apartheid, he kept women off the IR faculty while marrying one of his own students, Marion Somerville Johnson. Manning's reign was not only marred by racism and misogyny, but also, unnecessarily necessarily so, intellectual impoverishment. Susan Strange held Manning in contempt, referring to his conferences as dreadfully constipated, and she was rightly dismissive of the intellectual and institutional heritage that he left. Indeed, during the 1930s at least, far more interesting international relations work at LSE was from another figure also completely missing from wider intellectual histories of British IR. LSE students flocked to Eileen Power's lectures on the Great Powers and the comparative world history of East and West. She was well known as a writer of popular international history for consumption by workers and young people, an important and largely neglected part of IR's own intellectual history. Maxine Berg has written a fantastic biography of Eileen Power. In marked contrast to her male contemporaries failed attempt to develop a structural social theory of international relations. Power attempted to write ambitious international world social and economic history. Among her papers are 28 chapters of an unpublished introduction to world history from the medieval European Arab and Chinese empires to the end of the 18th century. There are obvious limitations to Power's work including its orientalism but there should be no doubt that the erasure of Power women-like power working in Britain, but also around the world concerns not just the past of international thinking and only women. It has shaped all international thought and the entire history of our field. It has impoverished our understandings of what international thinking was, is, and could be. And it is implicated in a range of academic practices today from syllabus design and citation practices to the gendered, racial, and intellectual diversity and non-diversity of IR's tenured faculty at its elite institutions. Thank you, I'll leave it there.
0: Excellent, thank you very much, Patricia. Um, Mick, over to you. I'm mute,
2: you're on mute, you're on mute. I I said, Karen, I always start with a mute and then I end up talking far too much, just like a man. Um, uh, Well, First of all, Patricia, congratulations on the project. I think it's great. And I'll pick up just on one or two of the things you said, rather than just reading from a script. I do have one, but I'll just kind of start with what you said about what we mean by the international, and I I think that's a crucial an absolutely crucial point. Uh, Defining it away from IRD. I don't know if Karen is happy with that, but in essence, I think that is extremely, extremely important of thinking of the international and thinking of what we know and understand to be international thought. I've never been a great fan of uh, disciplines myself, Patricia, nor indeed of departments sometimes. And so therefore, I do think therefore redefining what we mean by the international is absolutely crucial to make sure we include everybody and don't exclude those we do not include within IR departments. Actually, uh, Susan Strange, who, who, uh, who I did know actually uh, a little bit in, in her last years, um, and I read her little autobiographical piece, what I would have done if I hadn't become an academic, which I think you yourself have read and, and enjoyed just like me. and I know, there's a great phrase in Susan Strange, she says, where well, the barriers to entry to IR are so low that anybody can get in. Uh, and she, she she wanted to keep those barriers uh, low. I remember E.H. Carr, you know, somebody I've written about myself a little bit over the years. So like, it's a rag bag of a subject. Uh, he meant that as a critique, whereas I think Susan Strange actually meant it as something of a compliment, namely that it, it didn't really have disciplinary boundaries. And I think if we start with what Susan Strange said, I think we can get a long way. And and where you've mentioned that too, you mentioned Lucy Mayer, an extraordinary, extraordinary person who, of course, moved, moved over to anthropology. But what does that mean? She's still within what I would call and what you would obviously call international thought. And you also mentioned uh, Eileen Power, one of the great figures of uh, the LSE in the the 1930s before she died so so tragically young. And her work really very much fits into the to what we would call international, international thought, even though she was in economic history. So, again, I think your points are very well taken. It's a subject, uh, not a discipline. And, And that's the first point I want to make. I suppose the second point I want to make, and I don't know if this is one, I, I kind of feel you mentioned Manning and I entirely go with you on everything you want to say, you know, in relationship to, to, to Charles Manning. good friend of mine up at Aberystwyth, where we both were once said, thought that Manning had held the subject back for 30 years rather than developing it. I won't say who said that, but we can talk about that. But actually, it's interesting going back to the very first chair of uh, of international relations at uh, LSC. It's not saying that if Philip Noel Baker had remained, things may have been a whole lot different, because I'm well aware of the extraordinary structural obstacles for women to enter into the professions and stay in the professions. But nonetheless, I, I've always had this kind of little sneaking thought, that well, what might have been of history if Philip Noel Baker, who was a pacifist, a great believer in disarmament, who went on to win a Nobel Prize in 1959, whose name itself incorporates his wife's name, Noel. His actual name is Philip Baker, but he included his wife's name within the name Philip Noel Baker, which is interesting. What would have happened to IR, the department this time, or international studies at at the NSE, if he had not decided to go and become a a, a Labour Labour MP and then subsequently a Labour MP? I don't know because the structural obstacles to women were, were were huge. And indeed, the two people that I'm going to talk about today, they face those structural obstacles. It's still quite extraordinary, isn't it, really, to read Coral Bell in her, her various reminiscences of her life in Australia, because that's where she came from. You know, she came from a very poor background. She had to fight her way up. Uh, she went to the University of Sydney in the 40s during World War II. Had hardly any money at all, by the way. Joined the diplomatic service, very interesting period in her life, but was told by the diplomatic service in Australia, uh, if you get married, you lose your job. And she actually says, I don't know poignantly or not, I I just don't know, uh, said, well, then I didn't get married. um, And, you know, because I wanted to maintain a career. And I think that's an extraordinary kind of statement and tells you frankly, at least I hope we've 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 got a little bit better than that. But it does tell you some of those structural obstacles. Even then, even after the uh, even after the end of the Second World War, and and Susan Strange, and you mentioned that in your wonderful blog which you did on her on the LSE, Patricia. Even Susan, who's, who's a formidable human being, for anybody who knew her, she was a really quite formidable human being. Uh, as I say, Fred Halliday once said to I me mean, she took no prisoners, but she was a great colleague and a, and a wonderful intellectual. And I'll say something about that briefly in a moment. But when she was at the University College London, this is, by the way, no attack on UCL from an LSE vantage point. But when she was at UCL, and you mentioned this again, I think she basically she did a lot. She had about four or six children. And it's essentially that effectively the head of department then said, well, basically, you've had too many children. And in a way, she was forced out of her job. At UCL, fortunately, of course, uh, there was, of course, something to which she could then go. She'd originally been a journalist. She'd done her first degree at Cambridge stroke LSE in the 1940s. But fortunately, she went to Chatham House. And in some regards, I'd have to say, in terms of the development of the international thought, I think, again, moving it way beyond IR departments to Chatham House itself, a somewhat stuffy institution in many respects, but nonetheless did provide a place for people like Susan Strange, where she did much of her original research, which is very important, and also Coral Bell, who worked there under under Arnold Thomas. I think if we're thinking of the international, although I think there is a sense in which Chatham House itself bears all the same problems that you've mentioned about international relations more generally, it's well worth bringing in because it did provide a space both for Coral Bell and, 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 and for Susan, I first came across Coral Bell's work, again, I never had the privilege of meeting her, um, when I read her first book on American foreign policy. This is when I was simply getting out of Soviet studies and thinking about something else to do. And I came across this book, and, and to my mind, the book that she wrote on negotiating from strength, study of US foreign policy in the early Cold War period, is still one of the top five books. In my, in, in my kind of way of thinking about studies on American foreign policy. And I think one of the things I'd say about Coral Bell, who of course later returned to Australia, um, where she's much celebrated, of course, particularly at the ANU, that it's her work on strategy, her work on US foreign policy, written as a non-American. And I'd also want to make that point. What made her work so good, if I might say so, that she wasn't American? She'd studied in America, but she went outside of America to come back to look at America uh, from, 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 from the uh, outside. I think she stands really today for at least four or five of her books, I think, will we'll, we'll still remain classics. That I think her book on the balance of power, very unfashionable now, I know, but she wrote a wonderful book on the imbalance of power. And also as a realist, she was quite conservative. She was, as you know, influenced by Michael Oakeshott and by Martin White. Within the department. She later went to work with Martin White down at Sussex, where you yourself were for many years. Uh, so she was kind of conservative, but there was something in her conservatism which also made it somewhat radical. And she could look at American foreign policy and say what it was doing wrong. And so, therefore, she found herself quite out of step at times with those more orthodox who supported anything and everything that the US did, whether in Vietnam. And later in her life, and this was a really remarkable for a transition in her work, she started to say, well, you know, US primacy isn't going to last forever. US privacy is not going to be around forever, and and, and it's going to to be rebalanced. And and she actually was a great admirer of Obama, by the way, uh, towards the end of her life, because she believed that Obama was getting it right. I'm I'm sure she would have said some pretty devastating things against against Trump. So a formidable writer, a formidable, and by the way, wrote, uh, you know, at least uh, 15 books. I mean, this is the other thing about both, Coral Bell, and just briefly about Susan, even more so perhaps, formidably productive. I mean, I just do not know how anybody had the time to write the number of books, the number, and also public intellectuals, you know, putting the work out there, not just into referee journals, but also out there into the, into the public space. But I don't need to say too much about Susan Strange. Chris Brown said it many, many years ago, not just that she essentially created international political economy in this country, and therefore had an influence elsewhere, particularly in the United States. And let's be perfectly honest, Americans often don't read non-Americans, but they certainly took Susan Strange's work extraordinarily seriously. And I think that's almost a mark of, of, of her quality of her work and her impact of her personality. There she was, 100 publications between 1949 and 1999, a huge impact on international Political economy, and I'd also say together too, and we can go into what she actually wrote about. And again, she like Cora was deeply interested in the United States, and indeed, actually, she comes out really with what some would regard as a rather orthodox position. She actually was very keen on the American Empire remaining, in a sense, structurally at the heart of the system. It's quite an interesting kind of argument. You know, she doesn't kind of, but she doesn't believe in American decline. and She wrote very much, much against it, but. two things I'd say about both Coral Bell and Susan, both of whom played a huge role in the department over the years. Uh, and, and both, I think, should never, I wish they'd never left quite as early as, as they were to do so, because I think if they'd remained, they would have you know, accelerated that process that both you and I are, you know, are supporting. But I, I wonder, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Patricia, within the framework of an IR department now, not in the broader frame of international thought. The way, is it, could we, could we say that both Coral Bell together with Susan Strange, and I know they were very different kinds of personalities with different kinds of views, could we say that they really opened the door for later developments within, not just within inside IR of the discipline, but opened the door for women to enter into the, in, into the profession in, in a much more serious way themselves? i just throw that out as a question, because these are two huge figures in the field. Both had long associations with the LSE uh, from the 50s, 60s, and of course, Susan Strange, right up until the 1980s, before she then went to Florence and finally to Warwick. But I wonder, too, if we can't see them as two formidably transitional figures, as well as powerful, formidable women intellectuals in their own rights. And I'll leave it at that point. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks, Mick. I would just—I uh, just sort of wanted to add that that marriage bar in the foreign services in Western countries lasted often until the 1970s. So it's—it's uh-huh. so, um, th- th- um, it's actually pretty recent um, development. Uh, sure. uh, that We've we, that there's been some degree of modernization. Anyway, uh-huh. thank you, Mick. Um, right next up is Shruti. Over to you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Karen. Um, thanks also for organizing this and for
3: having me here. Um, thanks, Patricia and Mick, for your comments earlier. Uh, Like Mick, I have a prepared thing for today, and I'm going to get to that. But I just wanted to add to Patricia's point about Eileen Power. Uh, I've been reading this book, uh, which is kind of a memoir slash autobiography of this um, Indian uh, politician and also social activist called Renuka Ray. And she actually studied, um, she went on to represent India at the General Assembly, UN General Assembly at some point in the 50s. She uh, attended the LSE at some point as a student and studied international history and she actually credits Eileen Power with actually uh, as someone who got her to think critically about the international and about histories of empire and so on and so forth. And she quite funnily contrasts uh, Eileen Power to Lillian Knowles who she calls quite racist and thinks that (laughs) some of Lillian Knowles stuff about uh, uh, talking about the greatest empire the world ever saw carrying the white man's burden to to the remotest corners of the world. So she found that LSE was the place where um, a lot of her critical thinking about the international began at that point, but again, not at the IR department at the international history department. So something there about um, departments and and, um, thinking and boundaries. Uh, Anyway, so moving away from the LSE story a little bit now. uh, Sarojini Naidu, was a 20th century Indian political activist and poet who, when addressing the Indian Women's All India Women's Conference, a prominent women's organization in India in 1931, talks of her reception as an Indian woman in the US. And I quote, they expected me to fit into their notion of what an Indian woman should be. A timid woman, a modest woman, a jump onto a chair at a mouse woman who had come to learn from them. They expected me to supplicate for help from them. When they saw that I had come to them as a free woman, one who stood side by side with my comrade man, that I gave knowledge and beauty rather than asked for it, they said, are you a typical Indian woman? Just as Naidu bemoans on being asked if she were a typical brown woman, one always in need of saving, third world women, and I use this category quite cautiously, like Naidu, have for the International Relations Academy typically been objects of analysis. The parallels are fairly striking as 100 years after the lives and times of Naidu, we yet again find ourselves asking if Naidu as an Indian woman could theorize. This of course raises fundamental questions about the boundaries of international thought, who counts as an international thinker, and importantly, who gets to decide. Retroactively, Indian women like Naidu have been dubbed as national women, that is, women representing specific state interests. However, when we revisit such domestic political sides of activism, particularly as being formed and sustained within imperial contexts, we find that colonial Indian women also care deeply about transnational and anti-imperial solidarities and relations between states, even while being heavily invested in national freedom struggles. What this implies is that we cannot easily box the writings, thinking, and ideas of Indian women at this period as merely being nationalist or nativist. In fact, a closer look at Indian women's ideas demonstrates that nationalism and internationalism often clashed in the thought of these women in ways that stem both from their positionality as brown women and subjects of empire. And again, as Patricia pointed out, a lot of uh, Historians of Black women's intellectual thought have uh, pointed to this fact quite frequently. As Naidoo then reflects in the same presidential address of the All India Women's Conference in 1931 on her ambivalence on nationalism. I am a bad nationalist. I am a nationalist only by the compulsion and the tragedy of the circumstances of my country. I am first and last a human being. And I do not recognize divisions of humanity merely because of race or geographical barriers. Naidu's experiences and travels exemplify this. She spent her years traveling across various parts of East Africa, South Africa, the US and the UK. In 1924, at the Durban Town Hall in South Africa, she makes a powerful case challenging the dehumanization of both Black South Africans as well as endangered laborers from India calling out white South Africans, British colonial rulers, as well as brown intellectual Indian men for their forgetting and complicity in these racial and class-based atrocities. Later, as the first Indian woman president of the Indian National Congress, the pre-independence Sarah political party, Naidu expresses her disapproval at the INC for being oblivious to the distress and difficulties of those across borders pointing to the worsening conditions of Indians who have crossed seas to seek their livelihood in dominions and colonies, often under restrictive and repressive legislation, Naidu offers solidarity and calls for the creation of an overseas department of the Congress, one that would address questions of human rights and justices in other parts of the globe. The point I make today is quite simple. I argue that Sarojini Naidu's political ideas are constitutive of international thought. A close examination of Naido's ideas, activism, and speeches around the world allows us to recover the theoretical content of her historically embedded struggles. As she expresses anti-imperial, anti-colonial, and anti-racist solidarities across empire, Naido creates space for a different kind of international politics, one in which questions of race, gender, empire, and political subjugation are overlapping and intersecting concerns. Additionally, and this is quite important, as I've shown previously from Naidu's reception in the US, she herself was acutely aware of the politics of being a brown woman involved in international networks and activism. Her reflections help destabilize assumptions of a universally constructed womanhood on equal terms. Highlighting the plurality and unevenness of women's solidarities across borders, Naidu refuses to be constructed as a typical Indian woman on the terms of the West as she understood it. That I think is quite powerful. So present-day scholarship on international political thought and more broadly international relations are infused with power knowledge relations and structures that include a brown woman like Naidu in the 1920s from being an international thinker. The power knowledge dynamics that I speak of are twofold. Firstly, that global intellectual histories and histories of international thought have not engaged seriously with women's thought, as Patricia and her colleagues at the Leverhulme Project have shown quite successfully now. These ideas have either been invisibilized, relegated to the private realm, or deemed irrelevant to the construction of international political thought and its foundational concepts. Secondly, the histories and stories of gendered and feminist international politics of the Anglo-American Academy have been complicit in the erasure of non-Euro-American women from its founding story, a move that post decolonial feminists have confronted and continue to resist. These two moves, when combined, means that we do not see, hear, or conceptualize those like Sarojini Naidu as an international thinker. Indeed, taking Naidu's international thought seriously requires confronting this twofold marginalization of the power knowledge structures of the IR Academy. First, that of women as not being bearers of critical international thought, and second, the idea of colonized peoples as only being able to think nationally and in ethno-cultural terms, rather than in cosmopolitan, anti-imperial, or universal terms. It is through such a confrontation that we can begin a reconstruction of Indian women's intellectual and political commitment to not just rethinking, but foundationally shaping various international political questions that continue to resonate with us today. Indeed, as Patricia mentioned earlier, there wasn't a single realm of of thinking that these women weren't involved in. So it's really quite difficult to, to comprehend how they've been erased if we don't confront this marginalization. Importantly, before we ask ourselves what Naidu adds to existing international thought, it is worth asking what disciplinary, intellectual, and political boundaries we need to question, disrupt, and actively subvert in order to think and theorize with brown colonial Indian women. As I have shown today, hopefully, recovering Naidu's own visions of the international through her writings, activism, and travel teach us many lessons about the questions we need to ask, both of our academy as well as world politics today. Thank you,
0: I'll stop there. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. Wow, perfectly on time. Well timed. Um, so uh, we're going to open this up for questions. Um, if you want to ask a question, use uh, the Q&A uh, function. And um, as the chat says, please state your name and affiliation ahead of your question and your location. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. But I do have, a, I mean, I think that, um, uh, uh, you know, this, the, this work on recovering and analyzing and adding um, back uh, women into the, you know, our understanding of international relations it's kind of what what it is I think is extremely exciting and opens up all sorts of possibilities. So the first question, though, I would have is because Nick, we are—I am <laughs> the head of, of a department that, that does claim, you know, that we, we're very jealous of being a department. Um, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> maintaining maintaining those boundaries. Uh, but those of what we teach students, you know, uh, in other words, refashioning how we we rethink the canon uh, or what we want them to read and learn. Uh, I'm just wondering if i could sort of maybe uh, you know take this opportunity as questions are starting to arrive and yeah. um, is pick your brains about you know what how how do we refashion um what we teach students about international uh, relations if maybe you yeah. have some, well, uh, brief, yes. uh, two to three uh, points perhaps oh see. yeah no,
2: i know uh, that's a big question and, I, and we only have you know there are other people who want to speak so i'll be very very brief on that look i think in some ways looking at the way that i first started looking at international relations or what was on the program, say of international relations where I taught it at Aberystwyth back in 1995. And then, you know, if you look at it, if you look what is now being taught and the way it's being taught and the questions that are being asked, it seems to me that it's, there's been a very large, there has been a big transformation in the in in the subject uh, already. I mean, Shruti, I think, already has touched on that. And I think also Patricia herself has done so, you know, questions about gender, questions about race, all these things are also being forced onto the agenda by what's happening in the world out there as well. I mean, you know, I think that is also really quite crucial. You know, if we go back and think about what was being taught as IR, I don't know, back in Manning's day, or, or even compare that with what was being taught in the days of Philip Noel Baker. You know, Noel Baker was an idealist, Manning clearly was not if you move on through IR in, 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 in LSE, through, through some of those people like Nor, it's pretty traditional institutional stuff. None of it, in a sense, needs to be dispensed with. I think I'm, I'm traditionalist enough to think we do need to do foreign policy analysis. I actually do think we need to do some countries as well uh, and, 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 and certain regions. So I don't think we need to jettison everything that's gone before. Not at all, not in the least. But I think we're already beginning to see a reshaping of the discipline partly because of who's coming into the discipline now or into the subject to use the phrase more more readily acceptable who's coming into the subject now it's changed dramatically there's one one little picture i've got in my mind and this is the very last point karen i know i've gone a bit too much there's a wonderful picture rather a kind of telling picture of uh, coral bell i'm sorry i didn't put up a picture i should have done but you, you, you can see her in uh, patricia's montage be, behind you there's a picture of her and there's two of them one is at a, a conference in Italy surrounded by men uh, in, in international relations. And there's another one of the IR department back in 1967. And there's Coral Bell surrounded by men. And it seems to me to tell you everything. If you were to take a picture now of the IR department today, it wouldn't be like that. So who's coming into the subject as well as events outside in the real world? I think are already beginning to redefine how it is being taught. I may be a bit too optimistic on that, but I, that, that would be my simple answer to that question. I hope that makes some sense, Karen.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, Patricia Shruti, do you want to come in on this? Anybody? Uh, Yeah, I'm
4: happy to, to, on this question of how how should we refashion what we teach. I mean, I think we have to stop teaching the isms as as sort of theory and teach them as as history. So we teach them how you know, we teach them in their hist- the historical context of their emergence. Now, we, we may then still want to ask political theory questions that draw from sort of realist ideas or liberal liberal ideas, but I don't think we should teach them as a sort of series of isms anymore. Mm. They, we need to historicize them and also ask questions about then how various figures were written out, why these particular canonical thinkers, What why do we have the canonical thinkers we do, because of the particular way that, you know, the history of the discipline and its attempt to uh, establish itself as a distinct subject, especially after 1945 within political science. I do have the normal sympathy with the idea of keeping departments. These are different issues. (laughs) A department is not a discipline, right? So Mm. I I wouldn't support the the sort of uh, collapse of distinct IR departments into Mm. political science departments. International relations can exist as a department as long as it's understood as an interdisciplinary field. So why Mm. wouldn't we have international historians Mm. in an IR department, right? Um, Why wouldn't we have uh, historical sociologists, international historical sociologists in an an IR department? Um, So it's not a question about department, it's the distinction, it's a a question about the distinction between disciplines and fields and Mm. subjects. And I think that this has gotten all kind of a bit hazy and mixed up Mm. um, in our our own accounts of the sort of history of of the field.
0: Thanks. Shruti, did you want to add something? Uh, Maybe something really quickly,
3: and then I'd love to hear um, more questions. Uh, I think just to echo Patricia's point, the idea of just historicizing this is so important. And here I think the conversation between sort of international relations theory as a canon that we understand it, especially in the Anglo-American sort of framing of the story post-1945, and uh, the longer traditions of international political thought as we think of it. I think that's, it's really important to put these in conversation and again, ask questions about sort of why, when we read Hobbes, we also now are starting to think about things like, who was he thinking of when he's talking about the social contract, right? And uh who is he thinking of as, as as being sort of a recipient of the social contract? Questions like that. So just sort of incorporating, I think, questions of race and gender as being embedded in our historical understandings of The Australian model, as well as international relations more broadly. And again, uh, unlike Mick, I don't think that these are recent concerns. Again, like many of the uh, people we've been reading, uh, it's quite clear that questions of race and gender have always been important to some thinkers. And as Patricia's project proves, these people have been marginalized because of their interest in gender and race, uh, among other things. So I think putting these, uh, putting sort of our canons in conversation with people like this is. It's what makes it interesting for me, I think, pedagogically. Yeah,
0: thank you. Great, thanks, everyone. All right. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to read out a number of questions. Um, uh, Some of them are directed specifically to certain panelists. Some are more are wider. So I've but I'm going to just take these all in a group, and then um, each of you could maybe take you know pick what you would like to address from those questions, um, and spend maybe about two minutes on that, and then we'll take some more um, in your answer, and then we'll take some more questions. So I'm really just going to read them out now. So this is um, a question for either Mick or Patricia from. um, um, an independent uh, researcher, Nat Dyer, an independent researcher in London, who quotes uh, Matthew Watson at Warwick, who says, if, strange, if Susan Strange is to be viewed as a trailblazer, as is often said, then it is for a style of IPE for which the trail has gone cold. Is that fair? Then we have another question from uh, Lee Ruodi, who's an LSE student in IPE, who asks of all of you. What do you think are the causes of underrepresentation of women in international thought from non English speaking countries? Um, and are there any suggestions you have for diversifying? And then uh, there's a question specifically to Shruti. Um, the majority of the women from India, and in fact, many parts of Asia who were actively involved in international relations, came from extremely privileged backgrounds with strong connections to the political sphere. This um, access certainly facilitated their ascension uh, in political uh, life. So I guess this is uh, sort of more of a, a comment that you might want to uh, address. And then um, uh, I'm go- I- actually I'm going to add two more questions, trying to you know trying to get as many as I can. Um, There is another question from uh, William, uh, an economics undergraduate in Brazil, uh, who just wants to know if you could recommend first books to read uh, by those um, authors you've cited. Uh, And then another uh, question from Shruti Sina, um, who asks, uh, actually this is a question I'm particularly interested in myself, Uh, can an increased presence of women as leaders and negotiators of international policy, international relations, have an impact on feminist international thought and what kind of impact or influence might they have. So a number of questions there, I will, I think I'll go in the order of um, that we, that we uh, spoke, and then I might reverse it next time. Um, so um, uh, you can pick it, you know, pick out what you would like, uh, but try to try in the interest of time, maybe two, three minutes each, um, pick out what you'd like to to address. Um, and I'll start with uh, Patricia. Over to you, Patricia.
4: Thank you. Um, hi, Nat. Um, uh, Nat, Nat Dyer is, has, um a, a, an expert, a real expert on Susan Strange. And so he's asking a question of us that he probably has a better answer to. Um he um, he's worked in in all of her archives and um, mm. was and was essential to um we so we on the web on the Leaving Project website we published we reprinted we um strangers autobiographical reflections and nat was really the organizer of that and he's a, there's an a company of companies that with a blog of his own so um the question about whether quoting matthew watson whether if anything she was a trailblazer for anything it was for a style of ipe for which the, tr- the trail has gone cold i mean i'm not an ipe scholar um mm-hmm. i um I think that, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, I was in a depart. I mean, I was at Sussex for a long time where, and with, which had, which had, and still has a sort of strong IPE, Marxist IPE, bent. and, you know, Susan Strange would, would, is a sort of real blast from the past. There's a sort of, you know, she, she's sort of, yes, she may have pioneered or founded IPE, but we don't really read and look to Susan Strange uh, anymore because, her ideas seem to be dated, and there are new, you know, strands of IPE now. This is a, I'm not. This is not necessarily my view, but it is a view that I think I pick up from my IPE colleagues, which is, you know, I, IPE has moved on now. There's post-colonial IPE, there's feminist IPE, there's various strands of Marxist IPE, and Susan Strange's, for lack of a better term, this is and this really I'm you know revealing the limits of my understanding of IPE here, but a sort of realist. Um, account of the sort of centrality of states um, and and political power in the workings of international political economy, and that her work was quite descriptive rather than strongly theoretical, and that that, that maybe the field has moved away from um, from that. Um, uh, so, I mean, I but I still think Susan Strange is enormously interesting. I don't. I'm you know this project is not uh, motivated by seeking out. Uh, historical women thinkers that I or, that I or any of the other collaborators um, agree with necessarily or see as mm. progenitors for our own particular approach to international relations. This is an historical project, and the, and the figures are interesting in and of their own right. And so, Strange is interesting as an as a historical figure. So, while we are why it's important to be able to, con- to understand and contextualize her work. And so, you know, as I get more and more into Strange, I will become more and more familiar with debates within within IPE and that's part of the responsibility of this sort of project. But I don't, I, in some sense, I don't care whether or not her particular strand of IPE now still has legs within, within the field. I'm much more interested in sort of different sorts of questions and other, I- and IPE colleagues will take different views on that. Um, on the marginalization of non English speaking women in non English speaking countries. I mean, you know, IR, I, I as it's studied in Britain, is, in, is deeply anglophone. I mean, that that's itself is the problem. And so, but this sort of project already is necessarily collaborative. And, you know, they're, they're, you know the way beyond that is the scholars with with language skills, with an understanding of particular regions or parts of the world can do recovery and contextual analyses of women from around the world and that project needs to be done by people with those with those skills right so what i what we can't do in this project and what we're not doing in this project is as a sort of an encyclopedia of, of women and women international things from around the world a sort of notable women history which was one of the earliest And, you know, in some sense, I don't mean to criticize the sort of that sort of notable history approach to to women's history, which, you know, was important in its time. But we are doing a sort of different kind of intellectual history project, which demands, you know, much kind of more more kind of deeper analysis of of thinkers. And so, you know, Shruti, for example, um, you know, is doing her work. There are women, uh, you know, there are I know people who are starting projects on Brazilian women, women, uh, African women, you know, as international thinkers and that project, you know, that work should be done um, uh, in, you know, I would love to collaborate with and have a sort of broader kind of global intellectual history of women's international thought um, as a sort of way of broadening and decolonizing um, and, and sort of supporting a more global IR um, and I think with that, you know, since there is now all this talk about global IR and global history and global intellectual history, you know that this sort of project needs to be able to sort of speak to and collaborate with you know a whole wide range of people doing that sort of work.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I would just add, I think it speaks a lot to sort of the the limited language capacities sometimes of people who are working in the um in the english uh, in English speaking uh, countries. Um, uh, Mick, um, yeah, maybe. Just a
2: quick couple of points. I mean, I'm, I'm quite a bit surprised that Susan Strange has been kind of now regarded, you didn't say this exactly, uh, Patricia, slightly old hat, or at least, you know, has been superseded. Whenever I hear that, I always want to go back and read the original. And when I do go back and read the original of Susan Strange in works like, you know, his work on Sterling in 1971, casino capitalism, states and markets, mad money, I still get a lot out of it. I, I still get a lot out of it. I also get a lot out of her critique of globalization theory. When I was editing Review of International Studies back when I was in Aberystwyth, we published a couple of pieces by her, which I thought were terrific, because it kind of interrogated what we meant by globalization. I think so many of the things she said then still have resonance with me, at least today. Moreover, just to add one final point in defense of Susan Strange still, I think, being relevant. Uh I, I'm, I've been very much engaged myself, very state-centric, I know, very traditional in one sense, you know, thinking about the nature of American power and whether or not it's actually in decline or not. This is an old, old debate. You know, I've been involved in that for far too long. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I still think that Susan said, Susan Strange said some extremely important point about structural power. And I think the theory of structural power, which she developed in the late 1970s, against a whole range of decliners then, still, it seems to me, talks to me uh, today. What was the other question about favorite books? Uh, uh, Karen, did I pick that one up right?
0: If you can, yeah, just one, one, one book of some of the authors that you've, that you've mentioned.
2: Uh, oh, my goodness me. I, I, I like Casino Capitalism a lot by Susan Strange. And although it's an historical work uh, of Coral Bell, I like her very first book on positions of strength, which actually is a brilliant analysis of how American foreign policy was formulated. And she really gets in some really good research. I learned more from that book whole bunch of american writers at the same time
0: thanks uh Shruti. yeah thank you
3: um i just quickly want to address the comment on caste and a couple of other questions that have come up about sort of the privileged nature of these women and their mobility um obviously i acknowledge that a lot of the women at that point who um i'm thinking with and theorizing with are quite privileged, not just in the sense that they were English speaking, but that they came from a few generations of both wealth, as well as caste privilege, as well as, um, you know, sort of the privilege of political lineages, as, as you rightly point out. I do want to say, though, that uh, there was really a rather interesting mix of women um, within the organizations that I'm looking at, both in terms of caste and religion. Again, religion is really important, given what's happening in India at the moment, in terms of um, yeah, uh, the marginalization of Muslim voices as well as anti anti caste um, Hindu right wing nationalism. So, um, some of the people I just like to quickly point out Amu Swaminathan, Begum Rokeya Hussain, Sharifa Hamid Ali. These are all some of the women I'm looking at who were thinking and talking at the intersection of caste and religion and um, gender and empire. So. That's a really good point, and it's something we have to be extremely cognizant of. We don't want to create a sense that we're replacing great men with privileged great women. We we want to we want to kind of see a diversity of voices there. Um, just Shrutis' question. Shrutis is actually a good friend of mine, also at the LSE. Her question about um, an increased number of whether an increased number of uh, women in the public sphere now, especially. Within, as voices and leaders and negoti- negotiators of international policy can have an impact on feminist international thought. Well, I think it takes kind of our a, a projects, and I think I speak for Patricia here as well come from a feminist sensibility, because it requires a distinctively feminist approach to be able to recover these voices. Not that, that we're only interested in women who are talking about feminism, not that we're only interested in women who are um, thinking through questions of gender. Again, we want to sort of exemplify and show, I mean, a, a, a diversity of voices and, and and sometimes we disagree with the women we're theorizing with and about. So that's okay. So I'm not quite sure whether there's a correlation between an increased presence of women now as leaders and and whether that has an impact on um, historical women's international thought. I'm reluctant to call it feminist international thought because it goes beyond um, kind of a feminist understanding, but we'll talk more about this, Shruti. All
0: right, great, thanks. All right, I've got one last question. Uh, So this, you know, uh, it's an excellent question from one of our own um, IR students, undergraduate students in the department. Um, who who, um, prefaces this by effectively um, pointing out that the criteria for what counts as proper IR thinking was pretty much, was almost certainly based on uh, specific Western standards, which caused much of non-Western women's thought to be erased. So what kind of documents and texts can we use or have been used to identify women's contributions to international thought in the global South? That's from Vibhuti Vijay, one of our own um, undergraduate students. Um, I'll go in the reverse order, actually, um, of the panel. Uh, Shruti, over to you first. Yeah, uh, thanks, Vibhuti. That's actually a, a really good question and speaks to
3: my research quite a bit. I think the uh, I'm, I'm knee-deep in archival work in India at the moment. And um, honestly, uh, for the other question about books to recommend, I, I have none because um, a lot mm-hmm. of these women weren't Systematically publishing their ideas in the form of a theory, or or thinking through questions in a in that sense, it doesn't mean that they weren't actively involved in in thinking through the international. So, you know, sometimes it's looking through fragments, looking through personal correspondences, looking through their speeches, their public presence, media accounts, and you have to put a lot of this together, and it's it's painstaking but important work, and. I absolutely agree with you that if we go in with kind of a preconceived notion of what we want to find or what we think IR is, you're unlikely to find that a lot of Indian women were doing that. So you kind of have to keep a very broad mind. And as Mick and Patricia pointed out earlier, rethink what it means to do international theorizing, to be able to think with women who weren't um, from the West. And again, it's hard to kind of clump them all together as well. there were diversity of voices so that's my kind of quick response to that um was that the only question yeah right yeah. I'll stop there thank you
0: thank you uh Mick, did
2: you want to uh, very briefly I mean I want I mean that work must exist I have to say that I'm not familiar with it one of the things I would however suggest well I'm familiar with some of it one of the things I however say is also look at women activists in the global south at the moment this is after all the week of International Week of Women, after 8th of March, and looking at what women are doing at the moment in Mexico, you know the struggles of women which are taking place in India. It seems to me that the sources we must use are not those just, if you like, of the academic or the written or even the intellectual, but also look at the activists themselves, what they are doing to make their voices heard. And it seems to me that's coming from everywhere, but it's equally coming from the global south. And this week in particular, we can see forms of those kinds of struggles. And that's where we should also... Be deriving both our inspiration and also also our understanding of the position of women in the global south
0: great thanks mick uh, so last word to patricia did you want to add anything
4: yeah um so being um being aware of the different genre in which international thinking uh occurs is absolutely l- indispensable to recovering and analyzing international thinking from, a- from around the world but it is also you know, it's indispensable for thinking about women's international thinking in, in the metropole, in the, in, in the core. So in the anthology that we're, that's coming out later this year, we include selections from books and articles, but also teaching materials journalism internal memoranda funding bids book reviews pamphlets letters radio broadcasts speeches memoir and poetry all of those appear in the anthology as well as you know extracts mm-hmm. from sort of big big books but we cannot i mean what IR has the, one of the Flaws of, of 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 IR has been that it is obsessed with the sort of big big great books by the big by the great men, and you know this has impoverished our understanding of international thinking. And even the big books by the big men are you know are full of you know a lot of it is garbage. So you know, but when yet we elevate that. So I think that um, this is again th- these are not new insights. This is this is standard fare outside outside of IR. You know, within historiography and other fields, this is common practice so you know yet again we're, we're coming a bit late but it but you know this is that's that's fine we're doing it now and um you know so again it is an exciting time to be doing international intellectual history and especially women's international intellectual history
0: Completely, absolutely agree with you. Um, uh, Excellent panel, everyone. Thank you very much, Patricia, Mick, and Shruti for joining us. Um, uh, I think uh, we all now have a much longer um, reading list uh, to go through, an exciting reading list uh, to go through. Um, So thank you all. Thank you to the audience for joining us for your wonderful questions. um, And uh, take care. All right. Bye-bye.